Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. We have a powerhouse. You know, I think that we're really going to enjoy, you know, this episode. You're going to find it very inspiring, you know, really interesting what she is doing, you know, in a space that uh, is growing rapidly. But uh, without a doubt, you know, we're going to be talking about all the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, and all of the above. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sandy Seafried. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So originally born in upstate New York, in Rochester. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> it was pretty interesting. I, but I have to say that, you know, the weather is so cold in Rochester. I don't, I have only been back once since I left when I was 16 years old. I just, I appreciate the sunny Colorado that I have now and have very little reason. Most of my family's moved out here. You know, we went to Germany for several years. My parents were missionaries. I ended up staying in Germany and working for a credit union there that served all the military. Cut my teeth in banking, started in 1983 and been in it since. And now for you, I mean, you, you did move quite a bit, you know, obviously, as you were alluding to, your parents were missionaries. And I'm sure that, you know, the whole moving thing, you know, packing up the bags, going to like a new place, you know, new friends, you know, new everything. I'm sure that you know, doing that, you know, a few times, you know, I'm sure that it helped you to perhaps, you know, uh, shape up who you are today and, and, you know, perhaps also, you know, in dealing with the unknown, with the uncertainty. So how was that for you? You know, it absolutely did help, you know, shape my personality and how I dealt with people. Because when you're in a foreign country and you're the foreigner and you're the one who doesn't speak the language very well and you're counting on, you know, the graciousness of the, the community around you, you really learn to be a very accepting person of all cultures and, and appreciate all cultures. So I think that was one thing it really gave me. I think the other thing is it's true. You know, it is uncertain when you go in. You don't know what you're looking at. So when you face uncertainty like we did when we were born into cannabis banking, it was scary. But yeah, it still was more of an adventure because that's the way my life was, adventurous. Adventurous. And adventurous, it has been, you know, especially, you know, in your case, as you were saying, you decided to go into banking. Uh, but, you know, you studied business. Uh, so I guess what got you into the world of business? You know, why were you excited about business? You know, that's a very good question. I actually started in accounting my first year of college, but, you know, I, I needed more interaction. I really like to solve problems. I really like to grow things. I like to organize. I think that's the thing I like to do most, organize things and then watch them grow and thrive and, and get systematic about it. So I, I think that's just natural fit for me, other than accounting wasn't. <laughs> now, was, you... you, you... You were saying that uh, you got into the whole, you know, space of banking, you know, back in the 80s, 90s. Uh, but eventually in 95, that's when you decide to come to the U.S. and, you know, to to be part of Partner Colorado Credit Union. I mean, that sounds like, uh, you know, quite quite a change from what you were seeing in Europe. 
It was, but I needed to get back to school and get my MBA. And so that's what really drove me back to the States rather than get a, an MBA in a foreign country. I wanted to do it back here and, and set some roots down. So I, I did have some family in Colorado. And so that's where I started. And believe it or not, this is a true story. The day after I got into country, I had an interview and, and I was in marketing at the time. So I had 150 resumes throughout the country. And here I am in Denver. And I get an interview the day after I get into country and then have an offer within the week. <laughs> and so that's wow. how I ended up at Partner Colorado. It was rather serendipitous for me. That's amazing. I mean, and you were there for 26 years. Yeah. I mean, 26 years. I, I, I don't meet a lot of people that stay, you know, in one single company in the U.S. I mean, in Europe, as you know, you know, and, and, and for the listeners, people tend to stay, you know, in companies for a long time. You know, like they're like lifers, you know, in, in some of those companies. But in the U.S., you see the typical rotations, you know, every three to five years, you know, there's like something more exciting. Perhaps the grass is greener on the other side, you know, whatever that is. But in your case, 26 years. Why? Why for so long? In the banking world, I don't think that's so unusual if you want to build a career. And, and, and I actually have a son who's now starting out in banking. And I said to my son, I said, it took me 17 years from an entry-level position to make it to CEO, but it took me perseverance. I had to do the things that other people didn't want to do. When other people didn't want to build a call center, I raised my hand, give it a shot. When other people didn't want to do something, raise my hand and do it. You know, always trying to do something other people wouldn't do. So we had a chance to prove myself. And then perseverance. You know, you really can build your reputation. I've only been with two financial institutions other than Safe Harbor at this point in time. But in banking, that stability is super important in the job. And, and, and banks really need to rely on the people moving up like that and understanding the business. So get my personality. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a girl's dad. I have three daughters myself. And I always tell my wife that they're little, but, uh, you know, they're getting big. But I always tell my wife that there has never been a better time in history than now to be a woman. You know, I'm sure that in business, no? I guess that for you too, I'm sure that it, you've seen probably and you've experienced that transition from being the only, you know, a lady in the room full of men, you know, especially becoming the CEO to now, you know, obviously, you know, things are changing. But how was that, you know, for you too? Oh, uh, you, you want to hear something really funny? Let's hear it. So I just went on, you know, just got back from 11 days on the road, investor meetings left and right, you know, back to back and, and over, you know, over 125 investor face to face. And there were probably only three women in, in the entire time that I was on the road. And so I had this little theme song. It's like, okay, it's raining men. <laughs> And I actually gets me <laughs> laughing, you know, I'm like, okay, it's raining men, but I think you're right. It is the time, but it's for a couple different reasons, you know, and I think one of the biggest reasons is I was a single mother and I raised two sons by myself a long time. Those sons have no problem with women in leadership. And I think you're starting, and then we're seeing fathers like you who have daughters who realize they want their daughters to have the same opportunity they had. So I think the combination of those two things is really going to make the world a better place for women and even other minorities as we go forward. Oh, 100%. So I guess, say, hey, for you, as you were, you know, going up in, in, in the ladder, you know, with, uh, with a company, with Partner Colorado Credit Union, how was that uh, shift in, in terms of you? How, how did you really like develop yourself, you know, grew yourself so that 
you were able to be at par with every single challenge that they, you were experiencing. I mean, you were talking about it on raising your hand, but I mean, raising your hand and making it all the way to CEO, I mean, that's quite, a, you know, a, a steep climb. Yeah. Uh, again, perseverance and, and actually even getting into cannabis, opportunity presents itself when somebody else doesn't want to do something. So when I am grooming my employees and I'm really big about promoting from within because talent is talent and you want these people to succeed behind you. So you give it to them and help help them grow. And and I just I'm, I'm such a big believer in that, that I'm always I'm always rather hiring from within. And that really sends a message to the staff behind me. And I, but it is it is difficult. Every career is difficult. But if you take it personally, you, you just got to you got to you got to get outside that. It is personal. Career is personal. But the fact of the matter is business is business. And it isn't always going to go your way. When I left my first job in Germany, it wasn't a fun experience. It wasn't because I wanted to. I mean, I, I, I did. I, I, I chose to do that, but I got denied a promotion. And I, did, I, I said, well, fine, I think I'm going to go back to the States because it was a military credit union, mostly men around me. So I, I had a problem competing. But here's what they said. He's getting the job because he has an MBA and you don't. And I said, well, guess I got to fix that, right? So you're going to get those obstacles in your career and you just keep fixing them and stay with it until they can't say no. When I got the CEO position, I was one of three candidates at Partner Colorado. I was the only one in the boardroom with an MBA. Couldn't be denied. So you see, a hardship turned into something that got me the ticket into the boardroom finally. Wow. So now let's talk about getting the ticket to um, you know, doing the spinoff for Safe Harbor Financial, which is your baby. So uh, how did that come about? Well, I was actually going into retirement that year and some friends said, why won't you bank cannabis? Why won't you bank our clients? And I said, oh, don't even go there with me. I'm getting ready to retire. This was 2014 and, and my husband and I were retiring at the same time. Our contracts were up, but I said, I'll look at it. And when I started looking at it and doing the research and realizing how dangerous Colorado was. So you got to think of my altruistic background being in a missionary family. And here's the community in danger. There's cash all over the place. You're hearing stories about, you know, families taking their kids out with twenty dollars and $30,000 in the car in the middle of the night looking for an ATM so they can be inconspicuous and in putting cash into the banks. And then they'd have to find three ATMs because of limitations. And, you know, you just start, you can't unlearn what you learn at that point in time. And you can't just ignore it and, and put, let other people be in harm's way because at a credit union, we're worried about all of our members in the community. And so when I took, took it to the board and I said, this is what we're living in right around us, right next door, they agreed something had to be done. And when I went to the federal insurers, when I went to the regulators, everybody wanted that money banked, but nobody wanted to take on that risk because you could be prosecuted for banking that money as an officer or director. So then what happened next? Oh, so then it was really about staying alive. So getting a little theme here, but I had a theme song for those first several years. And I still have that theme song and it's called Staying Alive, the Bee Gees, right? I you know, that. it really was, you know, because, you know, regulators were really fearful of, of cannabis. So the whole idea was you know, making it through exam successfully, not getting shut down, having sufficient activities on BSA 
and risk management. And, you know, they would bring in 20 BSA officers every time they had an exam and they would be learning off our back. So that became good. We became the standard, but we had to endure 16 state and federal examinations inside of six years when normally you would have six. So once again, you had to persevere and many financial institutions would have dropped out under that pressure, but we persevered. We built the program. We had the front runner advantage, followed the industry, front row seat. It was never boring. I will tell you, it was always finding a new problem, mitigating that problem, mitigating that risk. We, you know, I like to say we, we did launch a very successful company out of this in 2021. And we've been cash flow positive since the very beginning, net income positive until we did the public transaction last year because it's a little different. But I like to say that it wasn't my brilliance that did this. It was an unserved market. And all I had to do was jump in and serve that market and follow the industry and provide what they needed in banking services to keep them safe and the community safe and the credit union safe. So that was a process over you know, seven and eight years before we finally launched it because it got too big with Partner Colorado. It was too um, stressing uh, on the balance sheet. So we either had to cut the program back or launch it competitively on a national level. And we chose to decouple it or spin it off into Safe Harbor Financial by itself. So then, and, and, and that sounds like quite the process, but, you know, obviously now today, you know, is what we're looking at. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's exciting. Now, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Safe Harbor Financial? How do you guys make money? So we're actually a fintech platform now that you know, was under the credit union. We still have a portfolio at the credit union, but we're the centerpiece between the industry and the credit union. And we actually, when, when you look at the, our, our relationships with financial institutions, we eliminate that uh, risk of actually having to deal with the cannabis industry because it's very complex and high risk. And, and you know, you have to have a lot of compliance measures in place. And we sometimes file a thousand reports a month, which is pretty significant when you're looking at the demands on this. And the banks don't necessarily want that, you know, they don't want to allocate the resource and they don't want to have to learn what we've learned in seven or eight years. So we're the perfect fintech platform between the bank and the industry. And we know the industry so well that we can underwrite the accounts and we can underwrite the loans. So we're making uh, money in terms of underwriting those accounts. And then the compliance fees on those accounts because I just told you, we file reports all the time and we have to watch the money. We have to watch the business. We have to touch base with them at least quarterly to make sure that there's not changes. And we have to make sure that they're legitimate and legal businesses putting money into the system. So that's really our job. Make sure it's compliant, legal money and accounted for. And that then we take that off the bank, but we fee share back with the bank what we make. And then, of course, we launched lending which is a very profitable program where they're um, you know, paying interest rates at this point in time between 8 and 14%. Uh, and it's a premium because, again, it's a complex industry. But some of the rates that they get out there from other providers are between 18 and 36. So we try to make it a little more normalized, but there is always a premium on lending. And, and, you know, and, and it's just because of the risk, and it's uh, federally illegal still. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, 
you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And and also, you know, as you're mentioning the word illegal, how did you guys go about fending off the black market here? <laughs> That's scary. I think that was one of the scariest things when we first got into it in terms of what happens if we find someone who's illegitimate? What happens if we find somebody who's who's money laundering? You know, how do we keep ourselves out of harm's way that way? So I put a barrier in place right away. And the barrier was um, you know, all these rules to bank with me. <laughs> you got to follow 20 different rules. And if you break one of these banking rules, then chances are you're not going to have compliance in your shop. So make it difficult for them to actually get an account. They have to go through a lot of due diligence. It takes sometimes two to three weeks to get somebody through due diligence that we trust their business enough to open a bank account. And so that's the first thing. And if they, if they lack any compliance during that time, if they push back on anything, we always had a rule, don't pursue them. <laughs> because if they don't want to be compliant, we don't want to bank them. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing is we're always uh, looking at their validation of money. We're always making sure the money is legitimate against the taxes they're paying and it's legitimate against the, the deposits they're making and the sales that they report to the state. So we had a lot of touch points that we're having to review monthly to make sure it's legitimate money. And so we can legitimize the money, which makes the financial system, the Federal Reserve, federal agencies feel comfortable with what we're putting in there. Does that mean it doesn't slip in? No, because a good compliance program not only tries to prevent access to the banking system, but a good compliance program finds it because they do slip in. Or let's say ownership changes and somebody who's not so legitimate buys into a company to utilize that company as a shell to put money in. So you always have to be watching for that too. And that's a little more difficult, but what we have found is that we work really well with law enforcement when that happens. Law enforcement wants to find that black market. And the industry wants the law enforcement to find it because they only want legitimate players around them competing, not the black market. So banking is really crucial in fighting that black market presence, I believe. So as we're thinking about, you know, com being compliant and, you know, rules and regulations, 
What about federal versus, you know, state level, you know, rules applied to the cannabis industry? Yeah. So I think federal legalization is a long ways off. I, I just don't think it's going to happen. You've got too many federal agencies out there who are going to fight uh, legalization. You know, one of the biggest ones is the IRS. They're collecting so much tax money on this industry at this point in time. Unfortunately, there's rules that say um, anything that's a Schedule 1 or a Schedule 2, like cannabis is Schedule 1, uh, they can't take any normal business deductions. They can only take cost of goods, which really increases their effective tax rate. So that's very difficult on it. So I, I think you'd find the DOJ can't completely do their job and fight crime if it's taken off the schedule and, and because there's such a black market existing in plain sight. I mean, we know that there are shops opening in California or New York. They have no licenses. So until we weed out some of these illegitimate players, and until the black market is minimized and until banking is optimized across the country as the delineating factor, you can't get a bank account, we have to ask why. You can't keep a bank account, we have, we have to ask why. And those are the things where law enforcement can look at those particular companies. I, so I don't think at the federal level it's going to legalize. And even if it does legalize at the federal level, you now have all the states what, 37 or 38 states who have cre created their own regulatory environment. So how fast will it be for those states to start looking at the other states and allowing interstate commerce between states? Because the regulations are going to be different. And if California has a market with excess um, product, does Colorado really want to have that business between California and Colorado because Colorado's got a very staple market. So I think there's a whole lot of other factors that are going to play in that, that the illegal status helps the industry, doesn't harm the industry other than the tax issue for the most part. And Sandy, what, what, what do you think that the other banks are really not even touching this space? What's going on? Well, it's still a very difficult task. The elephant in the room is really bank secrecy. And that's been around for decades. And bank secrecy is really about fighting crime, not just the black market and drugs, but, you know, human trafficking, arms control, that, that kind of thing. And so usually a lot of that's tied together. And it's always cash intensive business. I mean, they deal in cash, right? And so we're always looking for cash. And cannabis is cash business as well, 75%. We process, you know, we processed about almost $19 billion in, in cash in the last eight years of the cannabis industry and put it into the system. Probably 75 to 80% of that was cash. Banks don't want to touch that much cash because of the bank secrecy obligation, the reporting obligation, and the possibility of illicit funds flowing through the financial institution and not having enough resources on it. The other thing is that Right now, they could prosecute officers and directors for actually banking the cannabis industry and call it money laundering at the federal level. Mm -hmm. They have not prosecuted anybody to, to date. And every year they allow us to do it as one more year, obviously, uh, uh, quasi-permission in my book, but I'm always rationalizing my, my risk away anyhow. Um, so I think that uh, the biggest barrier is really BSA. And if you don't do BSA right, some financial institutions have been hit with fines over $100 million. So we, on the other hand, at launching this company, have been doing it for nine years, gone through 16 exams, which has allowed us to perfect 
as hard as it was, it certainly allowed us to perfect the measures we take to protect the financial system. Hmm. And now, now in this case for you guys, how did you go about capitalizing the business? I know that you guys recently went public. Yes. Well, the good news is that um, we still have cash on the balance sheet over $8 million. So we didn't raise cash to do operations. Since we've been net income positive for eight years, we had cash going into the deal. It was just really about the getting on, getting the transaction and you know, having access to that capital. Because if we want to now expand on the national level, and we are actually serving over 40 states at this point in time, but we've never optimized our marketing position. We've never optimized business development. We did everything by word of mouth. So now we're just going full-fledged forward, and we're going to address the entire market across the country with a sales force and with a business development officer and this lending program. And uh, then we're also going to look at other services that complement ours. We don't just want to provide banking access. We want to be able to provide insurance opportunities because anything that's difficult for the the industry to get, you know, they have a hard time getting broker dealers to manage uh, their finances. And, And so we're looking at rolling up some of the best of the best in the long term. That's when we would probably have to go back to the market and get some capital. Right now, we have some low-hanging fruit that we can actually afford on the balance sheet, like working with other institutions that want to exit the business and purchasing their portfolio, or combining resources, that type of thing. We're seeing a consolidation in the financial services for the cannabis industry. We, have all, we all did it alone up to this point, but competitive pressures are now going to push us together, I think. And, and up until now, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Um, 23 million. 23 million, got it. And now, why going public versus, you know, using the traditional sources, you know, more in the private uh, side of things? Well, you know, in hindsight, I have to agree that's a good question. I think that we weren't as familiar with the capital markets as we needed to be. We probably um, could have done a little more research. We actually um, looked at private equity. We looked at SPACs. We figured the timing was best if we went with a SPAC and could do a quick turnaround onto the NASDAQ and get access to that capital. So I think that's why the SPAC won out in the end. Not to mention that the fellas that were uh, managing the SPAC transaction used to be Safe Harbor clients at one point in time. So they understood the cannabis industry and they understood the difficulties of financial services, you know, being there for the cannabis industry. And when you say 23 million, was that all in one tranche? Because I see at least, you know, on on other websites that there was like two two transactions reported, one in September of last year and then another one in November. The transaction we did in November was the acquisition of a company. So that was our first acquisition. And that was off the balance sheet. We didn't go raise capital for that. We we paid that off the balance sheet with stock and cash over time. So with that one, we actually finalized the fintech platform model. That was a real important one to us, as well as put one of our competitors, quasi-competitors out of business and pick up their bank accounts with their financial institutions. So it was also a good growth mechanism for us. Okay, got it. So all in all, in terms of capital raised, you know, it's been about 23 million. Is that, I mean, on top of that, has there been any other, you know, capital that you guys have put into into the business besides that 23 million? 
No, and quite frankly, that $23 million didn't come to Safe Harbor. It was actually a cash payment to the parent company from which we decoupled uh, Partner Colorado Credit. So okay. we really didn't get that money on the balance sheet. It was part of the purchase agreement with Partner Colorado. Okay, understood. Now, you know, let's shift gears here. Like, if you were to, let's say, go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized, what does that world look like? Uh, I'm retired and on the beach. <laughs> so that would be a good thing, right? Because that would say we were successful. But I think the vision would be that you know, we have uh, still retained the market leadership position that we've held for the last eight years. We are banking uh, several uh, several of the states. We, we've got per penetration in the states similar to what we have in Colorado because that was our home base to begin with. And we've been able to produce uh, the, the largest market share. And that then uh, allows us to loan out our money and then build that portfolio. And I tell you what I think happens at that point in time, I think we become a prime target because uh, I think as legalization nears, I think, you know, at some point in time, you know, a financial institution, a big financial institution would rather buy something than build it because of all the effort we put into creating something like that. And now if we were to take a look at the future, uh, or actually not, not the future like we were doing now, but more the past and doing it with a lens of reflection, if you were to go back in time and you were able to have a chat with your younger self, maybe that younger self that, uh, you know, is now getting into the, into the banking you know, industry or you're already in the banking industry, but really wondering, you know, what's missing. And you were able to give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? <laughs> I would tell myself not to open my mouth so much, <laughs> not, not to be so... I assertive and, and mannerisms, but that's also perhaps a gender thing. You know, I don't think in the banking world, it's still a man's world for the most part, as is the investment world. Um, but I, I didn't make a lot of friends just being myself and, and speaking up because I think my, my parents didn't raise us to, to think gender was an issue one way or another. Uh, but I think there were a lot of men in my path that I probably uh, was a little too assertive and made them nervous and may have slowed my career down. So I think I would have um, tried to know my audience better versus being myself only. So, Sandy, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Well, you know, I have a very active LinkedIn account that you can look me up. Or you can find me through the website and uh, through info, and that'll get to me. Or you can do sunday.seafried at shfinancial.org. Easy enough. Well, Sunday, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, thank you. Appreciate you having me. It was fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.